We're trying to conduct a serious scientific investigation. Science, logic, reason. Do you have any hard data? Now, that's what I call science. You're listening to That's What I Call Science, proudly Tasmanian and recorded at Edge Radio, Hobart's premium youth station. Head to edgeradio.org.au for more information. I'd like to begin today's episode by acknowledging and paying my respects to the Palawa people, the traditional owners of the land on which we are gathered today, Lutruwita. I pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging and stand for a future that profoundly respects and acknowledges Aboriginal perspectives, culture, language and history. My name is Neve Chapman and I'm joined by my co-host Kelsey Pickard and our expert guest Dr Carly Tozer. Uh, Kelsey can you tell us a little bit more about what we're going to be talking about today? Yeah sure so today we are joined by Dr Carly Tozer who is a research scientist at CSIRO in Hobart and we're going to be talking about forecasting Tasmania's climate future. What will our future climate look like? How much rainfall can we expect in the next 10 years? And what will that mean for Australia's farmers and industries that heavily rely on rain? And how do we predict such things? So welcome, Carly. Before we get started, I'd love to hear a bit about yourself and how you got into science. Um, thank you for having me today. Um, I kind of fell into science, to be honest. I did all the right subjects at school. I, I liked most things. And then um, I ended up doing engineering as an undergrad like environmental engineering and uh, went through that and then worked for a bit but I guess I kind of always um, erred towards the sort of uh, watery part of engineering water engineering and um, natural uh, natural systems and hydrology and then that kind of led me more to a science focused and rainfall variability and, and climate and forecasting so I kind of yeah, started down that path and um, worked as an engineer for a couple of years and then decided to go back and do a PhD and then that focused primarily on science. Great. And so what made you go back to studying a PhD? So you've been working in industry for a while. What made you want to continue learning? Um, I think I, I felt like the projects that I, I did as a consulting engineer were interesting, but I felt like I wanted more time to explore, you know, new avenues, new methods. And I didn't feel like I had that opportunity, you know, to stick to a certain budget. You only have a certain amount of hours you can spend on a project. So, um, and I felt like, yeah, going back to, to do a PhD to um, to get into research would, yeah, would allow me to, to look more into the things I wanted to. You currently work on the Decadal Climate Forecasting Project at CSIRO. Can you tell us a bit about this project and what your research group is trying to do? Um, so, Decadal Climate Forecasting Project, we're looking at what's called near-term climate prediction. So, this is doing um, predictions on sort of, you know, the yearly to multi-year to decadal timescale. Um, and I should say that the, we use the term prediction and forecast interchangeably. Um, and so we're looking at how, yeah, climate might vary uh, vary on those timescales. Um, you might have heard about weather forecasting, so that's day-to-day -day stuff. And then we've got seasonal forecast, so that's monthly out to um, seasons. Um, so this is looking sort of beyond those timescales, but not as far out as climate projections. So you've probably heard of climate projections tend to look, you know, 30 odd years you know 30 50 100 years out so we're kind of in between that that space of weather forecasts 
and climate projections. We're somewhere in the middle there. And so why is it important to be looking in this sort of middle ground? What, what kind of information are you getting out of those middle ground timescales that you're not getting from your weather forecasting or your climate projections? Um, I guess it's a lot about risk. So, you know, a lot of industries need to look long term. They might need to change the way they do things, build certain infrastructure, just get plans in place for um, changes in the climate that, you know, might happen over the next few years. So I think, yeah, about climate risk. Who is this um, information useful for downstream? I think any industry that needs to, or that any industry uh, that's impacted by climate variability, so any industry that needs to make, to incorporate climate information into their decision-making process, that's who we would target. So it might be uh, water resource managers, you know, yeah, people in agriculture, um, you know, the Antarctic Division, so <laughs> any anybody really. Awesome, that's really interesting. So stay with us in just a moment. We'll be talking more to Carly about climate forecasting. You're listening to That's What I Call Science, and today we're talking about climate forecasting with Carly Tozer from CSIRO in Hobart. Uh, my name's Kelsey Pickard and I'm joined by our co-host Neve Chapman. Carly, so you're currently working on a creating a forecast model or forecasting models that are able to make long-term predictions into what the climate will look like in around 10 years or plus time. You're interested in predicting extreme weather events as well, such as flood and droughts um, and bushfires through these models. So how do you go about making these predictions? What are the sort of inputs you're putting into these models and what are you looking for as they run? So models, we have to capture, I guess, the observed climate. So, you know, observations in the atmosphere and the, uh, like, oceans. And then, I guess, we, we build our models based on those. And we have various components. So you've got, you know, the ocean, you've got the land surface, you've got the atmosphere. Um, and they, you know, make sure all those, those features work. And we need to build models that look something like what we, you know, experience um, in the world today. So that's really interesting, Carly, that there's a lot of different things that are going into those models and that you're really trying to make them represent the types of things we are exposed to, so kind of real-world settings. But where do you get the data for those models from? We incorporate what we call sort of observations or gauged climate information. Um, and so this is, you know, when we, we might set up a rain gauge in, in Hobart and um, record the rain that falls. So we use we incorporate that type of information into the models. Um, the ocean is really important. So you've got people and people within our decadal climate forecasting um, project who actually go out on you know the CSIRO investigatorship and 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 take recordings of um, sea surface temperature and and currents and things like that. And that type of information gets incorporated into our models. When thinking about a model, there's usually some base data that needs to feed into it and then am I right in thinking that there's usually a coefficient that predicts the impact that that particular data variable be it rainwater or sea surface temperature will have on the outcome that it's predicting is that correct in thinking that that's how a prediction model would work or are you using something that's maybe more like AI where the model's adapting based on continuous data coming through and it's learning and changing based on 
uh, a living data set, for lack of a better description? Um, well, I guess we incorporate as many climate observations that we can at the time. Um, and then I'm not sure, I think some models, maybe they do use AI. I don't think the one that we use uses AI. We, we use a process called data assimilation, which we sort of pull in all all observations that we can at the time and then, you know, update our model based on that data and then sort of forecast forward from there. So we're using sort of all relevant data to that point and then forecast from there. One thing we need to make sure is our models capture the relevant climate processes that lead to our, you know, rainstorms and and really and heat waves and things like that so we have to make sure that our models capture cutoff low pressure systems because they're associated with really high rainfall in say eastern Tasmania so we need to make sure that our models capture those things. The way I imagine it is that you're creating a simulated world inside your computer where you're able to put all the inputs that we're experiencing in terms of temperature and currents and all those things but then are you skewing the way the, the simulated world is experiencing climate by adding particular temperatures or high rainfall and things to see how the world's climate would react? So I guess we want a, an accurate picture of the current climate system to be able to do predictions, but there are certainly experiments that we can do once we have, I guess, you know, a model that, that represents our current world, we might be able to sort of, you know, um, people increase greenhouse gases to see what the impact of increased greenhouse gas would have on heat wave frequency and things like that. So you can certainly um, do experiments once you have your sort of model up and running. So you mentioned that your um, area of interest or your main role is actually on downstream of the model, so looking at like the effects of it. Can you tell me a little bit about your primary focus? Well, I guess perhaps one of my interests is the actual application of climate information in, say, industry in Tasmania. Um, you know, we produce forecasts. We would like people to use them. But it's challenging because, you know, the, the data that, that we, we can pull from our model, um, it's, not, it's not sort of necessarily easy to incorporate into, say, uh, a reservoir model or things like that. You know, we need to understand the needs of a downstream user, like, say, Hydro Tasmania. You know. So as part of my role, I'm interested in, you know, we call it like stakeholder engagement, so talking to, to industry users about the types of climate information they are interested in, the types of climate variables that impact their their systems, um, see whether whether we can actually forecast those climate variables um, with some degree of accuracy. And then we sort of think about, well, how can the information that we can provide actually be used in their operations? Um, because, you know, maybe we can – maybe they want to know how much um, – how many cutoff lows, or, or if they'll if they'll get a cutoff low next year? Well, that's not actually something that we can forecast on the long term. We can't sort of forecast extreme weather like that a year in advance. We might be able to ex explore uh, forecast conditions that are more conducive to those types of extremes events, though, and that still might be useful information for the downstream user. What's a cutoff low? <laughs> A cutoff low is a big, I guess, like a you know, we low pressure is often associated with rainfall, and so a cutoff low is 
what well, we we call it cut off because we've got westerly winds and a cut off low is is when sort of the pressure system is essentially cut off from that the winds essentially so we often have like a a big um, high pressure system what we would call a block and that sort of sits in the way and that causes those sort of the the a low pressure sort of to cut off from the typical stream so instead of it just sort of moving westward like normal it will will get cut off and just sort of sit in place for a bit and that'll bring a lot of rainfall to a particular region. I have a couple of other questions like how do you measure like uptake of this kind of forecasting information or is that something that you do so you were talking there about stakeholder engagement and trying to make information actually meaningful and useful and can be applied which is really difficult but at the moment you know, other than working with stakeholders, is it quite early on the, in this project of understanding like what would they like, or I- are you at the point where you can actually measure uptake and like who's applying this information and in what way? Well, the forecasts that we are producing from our particular project are not not sort of so readily available yet that anybody could just access them. Um, I think a forecast on this sort of annual sort of yearly to multi-year to decadal time scale are kind of new newer to the scene in general sort of worldwide it's sort of where it's a, a more recent push to get predictions on that time scale so um it's it's difficult to you know people can't just sort of access them from the internet and you know plug them into their water resource model it's so it is um use of them is low at the moment just because they're not not readily available um and i think you know within our group we advocate for uh what we call a co-development approach i don't it's just providing applying sort of a user with with lots of climate information um without sort of providing some guidance about how they might best be used and the uncertainties involved and and things like that um yeah I, i don't think it will be very useful if we just sort of give them all this information without providing guidance. So that's sort of our approach is um, we sort of learn with them about their system and then they learn with us about the information that we can provide them. That sounds really interesting. That sounds like a really good approach. So stay with us for just a moment. We'll be talking more with Carly about the future applications of climate forecast modelling. You're listening to That's What I Call Science. I'm Kelsey Picard, joined by my co-host, Neve Chapman, and we're learning about how statistics and modelling is used in predicting climate weather events and the future state of the climate in Australia with CSIRO research scientist, Dr Carly Tozer. So Carly, this project is aiming to develop ways of predicting what the next uh, years will look like in terms of rainfall and temperature. You use this information to then inform people like farmers and industries like Hydro Tasmania who heavily rely on seasonal rainfall. So this information is super valuable. What have you learned from having to communicate with people from completely different backgrounds? I think one of the things you realise is that what you think they need is not always what they need. And so it's always good to talk to people because, you know, you might assume that oh, it's all about rainfall, you know, rainfall variability is their most important variable. Um, And sure, it is important, but it's also, there's, you know, 
temperature variability in in say Victoria is also actually impacts their their systems too and I would you know you would never sort of appreciate that without actually talking talking to people. Yeah I I have to agree with you I recently um, from a plant science perspective met with some farmers who farm chickpeas and um, soybean and they were really interested in frost and when we can predict frost if the flowers have buds on them when they're going through frost you'll lose all those flowers and you won't get the seed um, so that's something I would never have considered that farmers would be super interested in is frosting times so yeah it's uh, I completely agree talking to the end user early on is super important and I know that scientists often operate with a lot of jargon and use um, a lot of acronyms and things that can be very hard to understand how do you go about having to deal with end users and trying to leave that scientific jargon behind? Um, jargon and acronyms drive me nuts and so I try not to use them um, in any way shape or form and uh, but it is hard because you know you spend your day spend day to day with people who who know you know what the terms are and and so you have to really get into that mindset of like you know make sure you know explain all things and um, and don't use acronyms. <laughs> I think it's really interesting to talk about, um, to touch on something you were talking about in the last segment that, you know, you're engaging early on with these end users, but that this approach is actually quite new. So I suppose what's kind of exciting you about the current approach? Why is this approach being used and what are you like stoked about to be doing it? Um, in terms of the, as in these long-term for the Yeah, there's kind of like midterm forecasts, yeah. if I can call them that, like one, two, compared to 30 years or daily, you're kind yeah. of at this new, new sweet spot that seems quite novel. Yeah, well, I guess, I mean, that is the exciting thing that, you know, there there's still, you know, lots of literature to be written about the application of these forecasts for one thing. And one of the, the key things about predicting on, you know, sort of the yearly timescale and, 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 and beyond yearly is you need to understand the processes in the climate system that have predictability on those timescales. So we're focusing on things like the El Nino Southern Oscillation, if you've heard of that, that's a big climate. And then there, there I go just using some jargon. But <laughs> so that's quite what we call that's like, I guess a climate process, and it's what we call like a coupled atmospheric and oceanic climate process. And it runs on sort of like a you know yearly to to sort of multi year time scale, and it's sort of this oscillation that occurs in the tropical Pacific Ocean, and that. Um, has impacts on Australian climate and so and it has different phases and one of those phases is El Nino um, and that's um, has been associated with big droughts in Australia um, so you know we need to make sure we, we properly capture a process like the El Nino Southern Oscillation in our models but there's also beyond that you know what else is happening in our climate system that moves on these sort of yearly and beyond timescales that we can capture in our models and then hopefully predict. Um, so I think there's just there's so much um, you know on the, the modeling side of things and understanding the, the climate processes but there's also yeah the actual application of climate forecasts on on this long-term timescale. Why are people or you moving towards using this timescale in particular? You know we had our daily weather or seasonal weather forecast, and we had our 30-year climate predictions. Why is this new approach being used? Um, because I, I guess people would like information on these longer timescales to be able to plan 
future operations, you know, plan plan infrastructure, plan, you know, changes that they might need to incorporate into into the way they currently do things. Um, so it's about, yeah, managing climate risk into the future. I kind of wondered if it was, um, like, I was being relatively cynical about it in my brain, thinking, are you using this approach because humans are inherently bad at understanding risk? One of the US presidents got elected in the 70s, I think it was Reagan or the one before that, on renewable energy and solar panels in the 70s. We're at a stage where, you know, climate change is still a political volleyball, essentially, and... Um, I wondered if some of that's because we quite often use these really long prediction scales. So people are saying, oh, well, that's not affecting me right now or next year. So, you know, it's like a future problem that we're not really able to identify with. So do you think that there's some rationale to that? Does that actually help to give people tangible action points that can be like, if you can action some of these items, like, is that part of the goal? Possibly. I mean, I think it's also that people have seen changes like you know in the last few years and perhaps the last 10 or so years and so there's definitely an acknowledgement that that you know we need to think about sort of what's happening in the next two years five years ten years um so I think I guess in my head that's sort of what what people are, are genuinely acknowledging that yep this is you know no more waiting time to time to do stuff so I suppose something that's interesting for me, and I don't know if Kelsey, if you have experience of this too, because your space as a plant geneticist is obviously quite focused on um, ensuring there's an, a, an ability to yield enough crop in the future in changing climatic conditions. Is there quite a large appetite or recognition in industry that if you don't appropriately uh, account for climate risk, you may obviously have issues as a business? Absolutely, yeah. So, I mean, in a bit like there's the insurance industry, the finance industry, everybody is is needing to take account of of the climate risk. So, it's um, I I don't think people can sort of not look into this anymore. Yeah, I have to say, I feel like um, because in the media and on social media and things, you see a lot of climate deniers around. The people who are likely to use these kind of models, like farmers in particular are actually very aware that climate change is a very real thing because they're experiencing it day to day. I mean, they've, they've experienced in Australia a terrible drought in the last few years. Um, so I would be very surprised to hear from farmers who don't think that there is climate change happening because they're the ones that are suffering through having to try and produce enough crops. So I feel like probably you don't, Carly, probably don't face much denial in terms of your clients, but do you face denial from climate denial or any conflict when you're just talking about your area of research in general life? Um, I think, you know, people, because I'm in the climate field, make various assumptions about what I think about, you know, this or that. And um, But I guess it's, it's interesting because I... I'm, I guess, a, a climate scientist, but I, I don't necessarily focus on climate change, so human-induced climate change. So I don't, I, my work doesn't specifically look into the impact of increasing greenhouse gases. So whilst I am in the climate field, I would not say I'm, I am by any means an expert about climate change and the impacts of climate change. I sort of, I guess, perhaps have a, yeah, as I say, like, you know, more 
yearly time scale type type focus. So it's quite funny how people just assume and that I will think this way and or and um but yeah, I'm like, well, I actually don't do that specific research. Um I can certainly I guess have some comment on things, but um I guess one of the things I I get frustrated, people assume you know everything about climate change and I'm like, well, I would leave that to person who to a person who actually focuses on um climate change research. I do, you know, climate variability research, which is sort of nuanced, but it's slightly different. But that might be like the imposter syndrome coming out of me. <laughs> <laughs> that might be a symptom. I think a lot of scientists, although we would probably know enough to give a comment on something and interpret the evidence, we're like, no, 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 that's adjacent to my field, but it is not my field. I wondered, Carly, um, if something like uh, something as large scale as the catastrophic bushfires at the start of this year impacts a lot on your kind of term of climate modeling because it's I would imagine that that would have quite a big effect but I don't really know much about it so um I guess in terms of like incorporating past bushfires into modeling and things like that um I guess one component of a climate model would be a land surface model so that's where we we would take into account probably changes in vegetation over time um, so that's actually a really good question. I don't sort of know enough about land surface models, um, but I would assume that, yeah, if you've got a big bushfire that has cleared an immense amount of land, that that would surely have an influence on sort of the land surface and that component of your model and then then have sort of an influence on, you know, the atmosphere around it and so on. So um, that's a good research question. This idea about these single events having an influence on broader global climate. One example is um, the big floods that occurred in Queensland in 2010. What happened is because so much rain fell over Queensland in that period, it actually changed sea level. So it's is quite amazing to think that this sort of actually had an impact on global climate. Is there anything final that you would say to like uh, a listener? or just generally that you're really excited about with your work at the moment? Um, I just feel incredibly fortunate to be, to be able to, to, to research climate variability and understand our climate system and, and hopefully predict what's going to happen into the future. Um, what, a, yeah, what an awesome job I have. I think it does sound really interesting and it's awesome that it has like industry applications as well. You've been listening to That's What I Call Science. Thanks for tuning in. Thank you to my co-host Kelsey Pickard and our expert guest Dr. Carly Tozer. If you enjoyed the show, please do um, get in touch with us via That's What I Call Science or That's Science Taz on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter or wherever you get your podcast. You can also uh, review and subscribe which would really help us spread the good word of science to a larger audience. That's it for now. Thank you and goodbye. This program was made possible with support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Find out more at cbf.org.au. You've been listening to That's What I Call Science, brought to your station and across the nation via the Community Radio Network. You can find That's What I Call Science on all major podcast streaming services and social media platforms. Like and subscribe for on-demand science updates from the team. That's What I Call Science is proudly recorded in Tasmania at Edge Radio. Head to edgeradio.org.au for more information on how you can support community radio. GemMaker are a proud sponsor of That's What I Call Science. GemMaker provide expert advice, services and training to commercialise new knowledge and technologies. 
Go to gemmaker.com.au for more information.